The Athletic. Hello, I'm Danny Kelly, and this is The View from the Lane, the Athletics' Tottenham Hotspur podcast. On the show today, I've got Athletics' Jack Pittsbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. And after a really, another really eventful international break for Newcastle United, Spurs were the first visitors to St James's Park since that infamous takeover was completed. Charlie, luckily for us, you were there. So, I mean, I'd love to hear your views of what you saw, felt and experienced before and during the game around St. James's Park, that beautiful and famous old stadium. But these are strange days indeed. Yeah, I have to say, like, I did find the whole thing quite saddening and dispiriting uh, without getting... I know, I know we've done this and people... Probably the last thing people need to hear is another journalist talking about how the Newcastle takeover has upset them. But I was surprised. Like, for me, the thing that really got me was... It's just exactly as you thought, you know, before the game, they're getting the fans up for it and that's great. You know, they're playing the songs that will do that, local hero, etc., etc. And then they introduce Yasser Al-Ramayan, the, the Newcastle chairman, um, a close associate of MBS um, from Saudi Arabia. The fans go wild, you know, greeting their new overlord. There are fans there with Saudi Arabian flags. Um, there are the guys wearing the you know, Saudi Arabian garms. And I just thought, I, I I don't know, it just felt like being at a rally for a political party or a cause that you find abhorrent and everyone around you is going crazy for it. And I've never, I don't think I've been in that position, I guess because we, we live in our echo chambers and so... Um, you know, we're not used to just being faced. And and, and you know what's interesting is, is actually over the last 15 years or whatever, the cause or party that I'm in support of has never really had a good result. So I've constantly had that feeling of being in the minority. And that's always a weird thing to feel because obviously we surround ourselves with like-minded people to a large extent. So then every couple of years you get these reminders that, oh no, I'm actually, the way I think is massively in the minority. And I guess with Saudi Arabia as well, most of the people I speak to are similarly minded. And obviously we have been on this podcast. And then you're reminded that no, actually for thousands of people, it's just great. We've got uh, new owners in and isn't this fantastic? And I guess it was just a reminder of what I already knew, but I did find that just quite saddening. I mean, I t- totally agree with you. Um, I w- I'd say as well, though, that it is a, a, one of the byproducts and it's another toxic byproduct of the way we communicate with each other now. Um, people, Let's use social media as the shorthand for all those electronic interactions we make with each other. Of course, is that me, you, Jack, my colleagues on TalkSport, whatever, going on and on and on about the Saudi regime, and I believe we have a duty to continue to go on and on about it, actually causes people to double down. The Newcastle yeah, fans would, would be totally. determined to demonstrate their support for the yeah. new owners. Um, and that binary nature, that black and white nature of the discourse at the moment, my goodness, you've, you've come to a, to a sort of version of university challenge. Um, the the uh, it, it, it can be very, very dispiriting because, yes, there's, there are nuanced arguments here. The Newcastle fans... It is not their fault that their previous owner sold them to the Saudi regime, but it's their problem now. They have mm-hmm. to own the problem. Um, they're going to enjoy the footballers that come in as a result of it. But what you're saying there about how binary everything is is so spot on. And like, I just feel you're now, 
I, I honestly, I, I mean, it was partly because the Wi-Fi was so terrible at St. James's Park anyway, so I couldn't do it anyway, But I, and on the way back on the train also. and I, So I was going to tweet my thoughts about it, but in the end I just couldn't be fucked because I knew if I did, I'd get a barrage of abuse from people, uh, Newcastle fans or whoever. And, and it's probably cowardly, but I just didn't think it was worth the aggro because on social media especially no one wants to engage in a good faith discussion where or where there's any admission that these might be complicated issues myself as well like you say like we are not i'm not suggesting i'm an expert on the country all i can say is from the reading i've done the programs i've watched etc etc it seems like there are some pretty major issues that make me feel deeply uncomfortable um, and it would be good to be able to have a discussion about that without being shot down. And I just, you know, I look at other journalists who who are doing really amazing work on this, both in their reporting, but also in their in what they're putting out on Twitter. Your own colleagues at the Athletic have done yeah. one or two astonishing pieces. I mean, Adam Craft and the work he's done amazing. has been phenomenal, and he's getting dogs abuse on Twitter. And you're like, he is shining a light on such important things, and he, and that is getting abuse it's like it's just it's really hard to the whole thing and Newcastle was a club and and again without getting all nostalgic and fuzzy or whatever when I was growing up they were everyone's second team including mine I love Newcastle because of Keegan and whatever the entertainers and people say oh actually they didn't score that many goals in 95 96 whatever but like it, it felt to me being at St James's Park was like watching a sort of old one-time rock and roll star doing the kind of Las Vegas years where it's just all gone a bit sad or, or maybe they're performing in apartheid South Africa or something and turning mm, a blind eye to city. it. it yeah, and you know, you've got Sports Direct right there. You've got Let's Salute Our New Saudi Overlords. And it just felt it just felt sad. In some ways, and again, this is not about Newcastle. The Saudi Arabian... Authorities should not be allowed anywhere near any of the English football clubs. So it's not about Newcastle. But the whole of what I saw prior to the football match starting and the things you are describing so eloquently, it was actually, if you think about it, the Sports Direct mega marketing, the new owners and their record on human rights and equality and the hilarity then of the players having to take a knee for for equality and uh, respect. It was a paradigm of it was it was like if you boil down everything that's wrong with English football down to its DNA and we're left with a couple of atoms, there they were at St. James's Park at the weekend. This is literally what sports washing is. You you couldn't mm. expect to find a clearer example of it than a full St. James's Park saluting and cheering the man from the investment arm of Saudi Arabia for buying the club and then the people who helped him facilitate the deal like Amanda Stavely, the wearing of the Saudi Arabian robes, the Saudi Arabian flags. Like obviously that isn't all of what sports washing is. Sports washing is also about brand values and about proving to the rest of the world that you can build a great football team and it's about access to the right people in, in the UK and across the wider world. So it's not just having Newcastle fans cheering you. But that is, and supporting your social media, but that is nevertheless a part of it. And it's, uh, you know, it it's happened. It's already happened. You know, it's not like this isn't something we should worry about, you know, two, three, four, five years down the line. It's happened just in the same way as is the case with, with Manchester City. I think everyone's slightly poorer for it. Just to make that even more like it couldn't have been more like that. They were playing Jimmy Nail and you've got the kind of, you know, Newcastle folk music almost being played as the Fog lead the into the, all the rest of it yeah yeah you got the yep. sign you've got all of that as the lead into let's welcome our saudi owners and they just uh, 
yeah i mean that is it and and you've you know it's 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 stirring music everyone understand you know if you feel hugely emotional you're there with your friends your family you're watching the team you love and the city you love and then and this music that is so powerful it just felt so manipulative because it's putting you then in a certain frame of mind to then be told and give it up for our saudi owner and it's just i found it horrific like it was like being in this weird political game um just kind of feeling that people are being manipulated basically I think we should, because um, this will come up again, I think we should move on to the actual football match, if I may. Yeah. And thank you for, uh, for being so honest about your own feelings about it, because, of course, you are leaving yourself open now to another tirade if any Newcastle fans ever get to hear this podcast. What about the actual game? I thought, Jack, when Spurs went a goal down after two minutes, it would be very easy to say, there you go, there's Spurs for you. But actually, I judge football teams in two ways. One, how they do away from home, and two, how they respond to going behind and actually, Spurs did blinking well in the end to come back and win that game, given the circumstances that Charlie has uh, outlined there. Yeah, it was it was really impressive in quite a few ways. And yeah, we have to acknowledge Newcastle are terrible. We will come on to that. But the fact that they came back from conceding early on, which is something which we know they're pretty bad at doing, that was impressive. I thought they got gradually better and better as the, as the game went on. I think they realised pretty quickly, if we just get the ball to Ndombele in between their lines, then he's going to be able to cause them problems. So I thought it was a real triumph for the 4-2-3-1 system that we saw against Aston Villa. Uh, and I think you can draw quite a clear line between the improvements we saw in the Aston Villa game and the improvements we saw in this game. I thought as well as being in Dombele's best game of the season, it was Kane's best game of the season. I, Absolutely. I know, we ha- I know we were mean about him on last week's podcast, but I thought he was much, much, much better. He was mobile. He was a number nine. He scored a brilliant goal running in behind. He made Sonny's goal. I thought that was definitely his best performance this season. And suddenly it was one of those Kane games where everything starts to click. And then in the second half, the way that Tottenham dominated the ball and didn't let... And it's kind of absurd that Tottenham lost the second half 1-0. The second half was one of the most one-sided halves I've ever seen. Tottenham were keeping the ball off Newcastle as if it were, you know, an FA Cup third round game. Oh, the possession stats were ridiculous for a Premier League game. Yeah, it was was bizarrely uncompetitive. Uh, And again, that's something Tottenham haven't really been that good at recently, you know defending by keeping the ball it's uh it's you know Tottenham's ball retention has been horrific for a lot of this season and yet yesterday I thought it was much better so there's like four or five areas in which Tottenham were miles better than or significantly better than we have seen them so far this season yeah I, I mean I I felt similarly and the piece I wrote after was about how well they attacked and I think you can acknowledge how bad Newcastle are but also suggest that that attack if it plays like that will overwhelm far better teams than Newcastle because you've got Ndombele purring really I mean he he looked so confident so on it did the 90 in the Premier League for the first time under Nuno uh, first time in a long time he looked really good you've got Kane and Son scoring you know Mora kind of just mooring about doing what he does but was effective um, That that's a good front four and then you've got Bergvine if, if you want to shake it up with him and Mora and, and, and the Hoybier and Skip double pivot that seems to have a really nice balance. So it, whether he stumbled across this Nuno or whether it was kind of part of a grand plan, he, do, you know, the, the accusation against him after Arsenal was he doesn't have a clue what his best team is. He doesn't know how they want to play. Well, since then he's named an unchanged team for the next two games. He didn't actually even make a sub yesterday. Well, that's something so we'll cle- talk about in a, in a second. Yeah, yeah, so that's quite significant. He's clearly got a first eleven in mind now. He's got a system he wants to play. And I think they'll win a lot of games doing that. And they're, what, they're joint on points with fourth. 
and also as has been pointed out they've got six points more point six more points than they did from the equivalent fixtures last season you could up that to eight if you switch Watford with Fulham obviously Watford weren't in the Premier League last season so you know I think now given how much we criticise them for Arsenal and, and I think that was fair that criticism was yeah, well earned totally was well fair earned, to- yeah. t- totally was fair but I think you can also then say this this was a good result in the circumstances given there was a lot of things to contend with yeah and it, it was the exact sort of game that a team as occasionally flaky as Spurs could have found any number of reasons to lose, but in fact their best players and their their collective team said no, we we can't be doing this. And once, as you say, once as Jack said, once they realised that uh, Newcastle's defence was was all over the place, and poor old Steve Bruce in his thousandth game, one uh, maybe it's because I'm uh, of a similar vintage. You, you look at me and think, oh, mate, you want to get out of that because this is no good for you. Can I say it to you as well? That was another really depressing element of yesterday, the whole Bruce thing. He clearly desperately wasn't does, doesn't want to be there. He's there to get his payoff. We know that. 99% of people would do the same thing. You then had Newcastle fans calling him a money grabber, um, which I thought was a little bit uh, rich given that they... The fans who are saying that seemingly are welcoming the Saudi regime. But I don't know, why are they welcoming the Saudi regime? Because they're going to get a lot of money into their club. So it was all just it's, and it's not like Bruce is comes out of it well. We know it's yes, he's dignified, but he's there because he wants his payoff, and it's all just a bit grim. Yeah, we talked about looking into the group of players that he might want to use, and I, I don't want to count the other players out of this at all because you've got to have a squad uh, in the way the, the game's run now. He's also looked into the system because we were messing around with 4-3-3, weren't we, at the start of the season? Yeah. And 4-2-3-1 allows several things to happen. The, the double pivot is not suddenly part of just being over-defensive team because it allows the fullbacks to get forward, and that's what they both want to do, apparently. But critically... Whether he likes it or not, it forces Kane up the pitch, doesn't it? So that when he does this thing and he wins the ball and he turns his man, he's not doing it on the edge of the set of the centre circle. He's doing it on the edge of the penalty area again. Yeah, and it, it's so important to have Kane playing as a number nine. Like I know he's really good at that creative stuff, and it, you know it's good for his numbers, but I just don't think it's good for the team. I think the fact is that Tottenham need Kane in and around the box, getting shots off, and they frankly they need him running in behind. And that's, you know, that's why obviously it was great that his goal was given, but it's almost the fact that he made the run was almost as good as the fact that it delivered the goal. You know, that was like Harry Kane in the good old days, perfectly timing his run, getting on the part on the end of the pass from Hoiberg, which to be honest, was the you know the best bit of creative players in Hoiberg do for a year. And then the brilliant finish, nicking it over the keeper like that. Uh, and if if Kane can get back to doing that, then I think Tottenham are in good shape. Yeah, match the, on just on that, on where Kane was playing, match the day two had the graphic of the player's positions and he was the furthest player forward and in, in a kind of centre-forward role. And it sounds very simple, but, you know, after Chelsea, where he was playing kind of left-wing hybrid role, it was reassuring to see that. And yeah, I mean, I it was, it was a great finish. And you, I spoke about this on Thursday, that typically when he has gone on a bit of a drought, he gets one and then kind of there's a flood of goals. So... I don't think it'd be any. It would be a surprise to anyone if now that he's got that goal, that happens. And and the other tell with Kane, you know, when his tail's up and he's feeling confident, he starts really showing off with his passing because he's got this incredible passing range. And when he feels confident, he's just pinging passes. And he did one to Emerson Royale, uh, just flicked it out. And then about a minute later, he did this extraordinary pass to Ndombele, where Ndombele then got it on the left and had an effort. Um, 
that went just over. So you could you could just see it all returning to him, and and that bodes very well for Tottenham. The very interesting thing about that as well is that um, you say when he's playing up top, he's a threat in behind. Of course, he's not a particularly fast player, Harry Kane. He's he's average sort of pace. Um, and I don't want to compare him with Teddy Sheringham in one way because Teddy was genuinely slow. But the comparison is worthwhile. Teams cannot push up against Kane because he will time his run correctly. And more importantly, he only needs, like Sheringham, the one touch then after that. You're doomed. If you let him get the ball behind you, you're doomed. So they cannot push both their defenders up to the halfway line saying we'll beat him in a race. Because he, if, if, the one race you lose, it's a goal every time. It's more like Berbatov in that way. He was someone who could drop deep but was also to people's surprise because I think we thought of Berbatov as being quite a languid sort of mover but he was another one who if you if he he could time his runs so well and could make runs in behind and, and then was lethal like that goal Berbatov scored for Monaco when they, Monaco knocked Arsenal out of the Champions League in the last 16 a great great day for everybody I think it's fair to say what do you make of the fact that we had no substitutions in that game it was like Poland-England a few weeks ago when Gareth Southgate stuck with the same 11 all the way through and then conceded an added time equaliser. To be honest, when it went to 3-2, I thought, oh my God, it's going to happen again. But yeah, it was a bit strange just because, you know, it's not like Spurs had a bad bench. You know, they had Lacelso on the bench and maybe a topic for another day, but I think the integration of Lacelso is maybe the next step that Tottenham need, need to take. So it was a bit surprising that Nuno didn't want to bring any fresh legs on, particularly given how tired some of those players must have been. And how, you know, the travel that Romero and Royale had done and also just in the and maybe he didn't feel he needed to but Mourinho this felt like quite revolutionary in the mid-noughties what he would do if a team were in that position would be make three separate subs kind of from the 80th minute onwards and just completely kill the flow of the game do them all individually and it was quite a good stalling tactics I mean he was asked about it his his answer wasn't hugely illuminating but he said the idea was clear I think we were controlling the game really well and I believe that with all the international break disruption the more time the players have on the pitch I believe that it's better for them so I guess he means the more time those 11 players have on the pitch because you'd think it might be useful for 14 players but yeah I mean I guess he felt there was no point disrupting it on the subject of international travel I thought that Romero and Royale given that they what flown in on Friday from South America and yeah. presumably would have been jet lagged out of their minds uh, after two weeks away, plus physically tired from all their football, especially Romero. I thought Romero wasn't perfect, but I thought he did really well. And to be honest, I thought Royale put in a really good shift. I said, he recovered. I said on Twitter afterwards that Royale played well, and, and lots of people wanted me, no, it's, it's, no, he was shit, he was shit. I thought he did fine in the, circum- in the circumstances. He started slowly and did look knackered, and he, was, he gave the ball away in the lead-up to the goal. Yeah. I mean, Romero, he was flying there. I mean... I was talking about this afterwards. Like he does go flying into tackles, and you do wonder if that's something that can, can I guess, be coached out of his game and should be coached out of his game. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of the player he is. But there was time in the first half. I can't remember which player it was. Did a fairly regulation dummy, and he absolutely <laughs> bought it and just yeah. went flying across, almost like out of shot. Um, yeah. And and I was like, okay, you need to just take a breath. And there was a moment as well where Dyer was going mad at him for being out of position because he is so impetuous. And and the thing is, if you're a really quick centre back, it's okay if your partner goes AWOL from time to time. But I think if you're Eric Dyer, you don't really want to be exposed yeah. um, on your own because your centre back has gone charging out of position. This is what makes it so funny to me that he plays for Argentina with Nicolas Otamendi. Yeah, it's amazing. Who is, like, the rash, who is even more rash than Romero, but also much slower. 
Like Otamendi's got this amazing mix of being like he goes in for tackles that a quicker defender wouldn't get, and Otamendi moving at a snail's pace is never ever going to get there. So the the, the 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 fact that they both play together for Argentina and presumably both go in for these crates <laughs> trying to nick the ball ten yards ahead of them every time is just hilarious to me. Well, I, I must say, did you? I, I take it you have seen, but I would just describe it for those who haven't. Um, the aforementioned Otamendi and Romero involved in one of the great pieces of shithousery in their the double Keo and the double Martin Keo and the Peruvians got a penalty against Argentina. To be fair, the uh, the evidence your own eyes said it wasn't a penalty, but they got it anyway. The Peruvian fella blazes it over, and Otamendi and Romero come run up to him and jump up in the air like Martin Keown at Old Trafford and, and land in perfect synchronisation. It was amazing. I, I'm, I'm completely tolerant of Romero at this stage because he does so many fun things. Yeah. Um, my, my worry is the same as both of yours, I can tell by the look on your faces. It's all very well uh, jumping in against Joe, Joe Linton. Um, coming up against some of the better uh, players in the Premier League, they'll be using that rashness. They'll be using that as a tactic, won't they? They'll be getting themselves, they'll be positioning himself to, to make sure that when he comes diving in, they'll turn themselves and get the ball past him. Yeah, you can just see a scenario where, like, let's say Tottenham are playing Liverpool, they'll knock it into Firmino. Romero will race forward to nick it from Firmino, and then Firmino will just kind of pop it out to Salah or Mane running in behind, and they'll run into that massive space and score. I th- but I think over the course of the season, that will happen, or he'll give away a silly penalty and fans will be going mad. But there'll be another game, the way he plays, because he is quite all or nothing, where... They'll they'll beat United, say, 1-0 at home and Romero will have a storm and it'll be like Ronaldo's in Romero's pocket and there'll be all of those sort of memes and everyone will be going mad about him. Like, I think he at this point in his career anyway, I think we have to accept he is going to, he's going to have some amazing games, but he probably will, he'll get booked quite a bit, he'll give away the odd penalty um, and it's whether he evolves or whether he just stays, but that's probably what's keeping him from being where he is to being like truly elite. Well, if you get voted the best central defender in Italy, you're you're, you're doing yeah. something right, albeit as part of a three, not a two, where he yeah. had a bit of cover for, for, for that thing that he does. So we'll take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about him again, but in relation to Eric Dyer, who one of the subscribers uh, to The Athletic has had a great deal to, about, about which to say um, following your article, uh, Charlie, which is just take a deep breath so that we can uh, gather our forces again. Back in a second here on The View from the Lane. I'm Adam Hurry, and to mark the 100th episode of my Football Clichés podcast, Jamie Carragher popped in to discuss his footballing fascinations and irritations on the latest edition of Mesut Harland Dicks. It's like Desert Island Discs, but for football. I played for England as a striker. Really? At, uh, yeah, don't look so shocked. I am shocked. And, uh... <laughs> I watched you at the 1997 Amsterdam 76s. I can't believe this. <laughs> Whether this is a feather in my cap or not, I was keeping Emil Heskey out of England on the 16th team. He was on the <laughs> that bike. is a feather in your cap. <laughs> and all the teams were doing proper warm-ups and we were just bladdering balls at the wall and having <laughs> shots and just like just causing mayhem. And we've just gone out with no sort of like formation, anything. It's just like, just go out and put like whatever. And, you know, it was just an absolute <laughs> disaster, but funny in a way. How is El Hadstuf these days, Jamie? How is he doing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he rates me really highly. <laughs> <laughs> to listen to Jamie in full flow, check out Football Clichés wherever you get your pods. And of course, ad-free on The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Really, really interesting comments from Ben B in response to Charlie's article about the game at St. James's Park. Let me just read it in full, if I may. The crusade against Dyer is harsh and counterproductive. A lot of fans seem to watch games on high alert for a Dyer mistake while ignoring everything he does well. Romero is at fault for the first goal we conceded yesterday, but how many called him out for it? Dyer is our only centre-back who is comfortable playing on the left of a two. He's our only defender um, with any leadership qualities. His ball progression is better than any other centre-back we have. Injuries have held him back in the past, but he has generally been very, very good this season. And first of all, congratulations to Eric Dyer for having the, the clarity of thought in the crisis to go and get the defibrillator. But... Uh, look, I, I, I like Eric Dye. He's had some terrible form in, in, over, over the last 18 months. But I think that he and Romero, with time and, and, and more togetherness, uh, they might be a very good combination. And I think Dyer is... I think people are really ridiculously short. Their memories are very short. When Spurs had their great team, even when he was the midfield holding player, he was critical to the way Pochettino wanted to play because he would drop back into the mid, the mid, the central defensive two, allowing Danny Rose and Carl Walker to play at the corner flags. And it's not glamorous, but it got him into the England team playing in that position. And now he's, you know, he wants to be a centre half. I think Romero might be a very good choice of partner for him. Yeah, I think it's the perfect pairing, really. Obviously, Romero has to play, but I think I think Dyer is great to go alongside him because Dyer does, you know, he's. Not the most. He's not the best player I've ever seen, but he he's got so, he's so good on like you know intangibles as they say leadership, organization, communication. He I think he he more than anyone else is the kind of glue in the Tottenham dressing room. I think he's not someone who's just got two or three mates he hangs around with all the time. He's friends with you know he's friends with all the English players. He's friends with the Spanish speaking players. Dyer himself speaks Spanish. I'm sure that would be invaluable to Romero when it comes to Romero settling into Tottenham on and off the pitch. So I, I think Dyer is a fantastic partner for Romero, even though he hasn't got the same kind of like aggressive, eye-catching talent or style that Romero defends with. And yeah, sometimes he makes bad mistakes. And yeah, he made a pretty clumsy mistake at the end of the game yesterday. But there's a lot of upside with Dyer that is difficult to detect. But I do think that Tottenham are better off with him in the team than not. I almost think with Dyer, the challenge as well can come the other way because... He's clearly such a good bloke, and with things like yesterday, how quickly he reacted. Like you just you you get those glimpses, and he's he's so valued. I was talking about this with Jack a few weeks ago that when uh, Gareth Southgate was deciding his England captain, Dyer was a real you know a real consideration, someone he really thought about. Even though Dyer, you'd probably say has never been a key player for England, but his leadership is so well respected. And um, they're a leadership expert. I remember one gave an interview a few years ago saying that his observations were that this guy, Eric Dyer, is an absolute standout. He has all the characteristics that you want from a leader. And on that point, Dyer was so close to being part of the England squad for the world, for the Euros last year, even though he'd been playing badly for Tottenham at the back end of last season. And yeah, he didn't quite make it. Southgate just went for Mings and Cody over Dyer. But the fact that Dyer was as close as he was to inclusion, even though you know, Mings and Cody had arguably had better seasons than him, just goes to show how much Southgate values Dyer. And Southgate was at pains, as I say afterwards, how much you know he was disappointed not to take Dyer. He loves Dyer as a person. Yeah. And um, I'm sure if he keeps playing well, he'll be back in the England squad soon enough. I think the challenge, though, with, with that we face is that we have to also separate that from the fact that, you know, yesterday... 
if it wasn't Eric Dyer, who we like as a person, we think is a really respectable guy, we might be giving we might be giving another centre back more grief for scoring a needless own goal that then puts his team under pressure. So it's almost like I think I agree with Ben B. I think some people seem to have a weird agenda against him. And then for us, the challenge is almost the other way that it's like we have to separate the fact that we have a lot of respect for him with with just his performances. Um, and that could be tricky. But I do think objectively he has had a good season so far. And I think Ben's on to something here when he talks about the fact that, you know, we we go at him rather than Romero. I mean, there was that goal, the goal that Villa Villa's equaliser came because Romero charged out of position, put in a really horrible tackle that he then got booked for. And then I saw some people saying Dyer was slow to get across. I was like, I don't think Dyer's the issue in this goal. Do you think if, if Hugo Lloris were to leave at the end of his current contract or maybe after an ex- a brief extended contract, do you think Dyer should be Tottenham captain? Because I think he'd be a great captain. That depends on whether Harry Kane signs another contract, doesn't it? If uh, if he does, it seems maybe. unlikely that you'll have the England captain not captain. But I think Dyer would be a more natural captain than Kane. Yeah, he's agree. more of a vocal leader on the pitch. He's more of a presence in the dressing room. He's closer to more of the squad. I'd like him to be captain. The problem with that, of course, then, is that if he gets into another run of form like he did in the middle of last year, that he probably makes it harder to leave him out. And and Charlie's right to say you have to separate people's um, personality from their players, you know. Luis Suarez is not somebody you choose to go out for a drink with, but he's a great footballer, you know. You have to be honest about that. I think it'd be great. Of course, it's the, it's the, it is also, uh, we should make a, a mention, a salute here, it's the... This week was the third anniversary of putting Sergio Ramos in the stands um, in yeah. Madrid. In England's yeah. best performance under Southgate, um, which was the, the touch paper for which was lit by Eric deciding. And of course, he should never have been booked. It was a great tackle. And, I, it was a great and, tackle. and one loved it. I mean, which of us, you have to have a heart of stone not to enjoy Ramos getting on the end of one of those, don't you? Let's <laughs> be honest. Yeah, also just on the die point, because I, do, I am aware and I find it annoying. I'm aware of how annoying it is for fans when players get described as like top man. Yeah, but he's a top man because for a lot of fans they don't really care. No. They want to know. You know, they just want fair criticism of a player. So I, uh, I do get that, and we have to be careful to to not be blinded by how much of a great guy Di clearly is. I've got more things I want to talk about, actually. First of all, some humour, if you like. Richard Keys. I've got to be careful what I say here. He's my former colleague. Um, on TalkSport, and he follows me on Twitter. Just an amazing moment on being Sport. Back to Newcastle here, where they were discussing who the next Newcastle manager should be. And this conversation started with Antonio, with Antonio Conte and moved around there, and some several exciting young German coaches were mentioned. And they went blah, they went blah, they went blah. And suddenly Richard Keyes, I mean, I don't know. Where did he get it from? He said, I'll tell you who I think should be the manager, Mark Hughes. <laughs> now, anybody? I know, you're a, I know you're a great watcher of the keys, um, yeah. Charlie. What did you make of that? Well, it was, um, yeah, thankfully, as those who listen to the Football Clichés podcast will know, I am a big uh, Richard Keyesophile. And so I was sent this by quite a few people ah. this morning. And I, I loved it. It wasn't, he, he has form in this area of making kind of left field shouts. My favourite, and I would seek this out, uh, is him suggesting a few years ago that the, United new, the new United manager should be Laurent Blanc. And it was met with this kind of stony silence that uh, genuinely after a few seconds, Jason Mac- a few seconds of silence, Jason McAteer, who's in the studio with him, just goes, why? And it just, it just, 
it's it's a really it's, a, it's, it's just a brilliant moment yesterday actually his huge when you're, shout when you're is, being mentally outflanked by Jason McIntyre you know you're in trouble don't you with all due respect Jason but his uh, his um, huge shout actually gets quite a warm response from Nigel de Jong um but yeah, although actually we should say as well, his what he was originally pushing for, he initially says there's no one who could do the job better than Steve Bruce. And we should say, Brucey is a mate of Keyes's, which he's, you know, yes. he's never backward about coming forward in, in in that respect. But he says, if Brucey has to go, then Husey. yeah, Mark Hughes. If no Brucey, then get Husey in, yeah. Yeah, uh, amazing. I feel like this is probably born of a misapprehension that Newcastle can just replicate what Manchester City did in August 2008 when of course he was manager and of course you know, in January window 2009 he bought Nigel De Jong exactly. amongst, uh, along with Craig Bellamy, Shea Given and Wayne Bridge. But the fact, like watching Newcastle yesterday I just thought they're actually miles worse than City were at this point. You know, City had, we talked about this in the last week's pod, City had half of the good team at this point. Newcastle are averaging 0.375 points per game. Like they're going to be on, like when the window opens on the 1st of January, they're going to be on give or take 10 points. And at that point, the conversation about, oh, should we get Conte? Should we sign Coutinho? Should we sign Zaha? It's just insane. Like it's not going to happen if you look like you're going to go down. And I kind of wonder whether, I think Newcastle are going to go down. It's a mess. Like the, the team is terrible. The manager has got, had his authority destroyed. And the people running it don't, you know, they've got a lot of money, but they've got no idea what to do with it. I mean, that would be, I mean, my eyebrows shot up there because this is already the biggest story in world football of the year if they were to get relegated. I mean, with due respect to Richard Keyes, I think that's the point he was trying to make. You need somebody who's going to keep them up this year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On, on that point, Keyes is, uh, Keyes is absolutely spot on. They do need someone to try and keep them up. And if they, and you know, I'm sure, I mean, Eddie Howe's name's been mentioned, for example, and I guess Eddie Howe, you know, did keep Bournemouth up for a bit. But it's got to be a manage. It's got to be a manager with experience in getting a kind of very disparate squad to stay in the Premier League. The idea that you can go and get, you know, some kind of glamorous young manager from Germany now, it, I mean, seems kind of ludicrous, right? The other person I want to talk about was, and I'm sure uh, we'll play out a little bit of it, Jamie Redknapp, uh, just as uh, Husey and Bruce here mates with Keezy, we must never forget that Jamie Redknapp has the ear of one Harry Redknapp. But what about his outburst at the weekend that Spurs should have sold Kane, should have done this, should have done that, were offered infinite riches um, for, I mean, all the things that you two told me over the summer are apparently wrong. They were offered massive money, Spurs, uh, for Harry Kane. Should have sold him, should have brought in, um, you know, a whole raft of players. It, it was a, a mad outburst, I thought. Or, or have I got that wrong? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty bad day for Sky Sports yesterday. Um, look, we should say they did one fantastic bit, which was talking to David Ginola about what you should do if somebody has a heart attack. Uh, obviously, Ginola had his own heart attack a few years ago. And that was timely, helpful public service broadcasting uh, at the best possible moment. So we should certainly applaud them on that. But I thought on two other points, they were really poor. The first is uh, the build-up to the game when they were talking about the Saudi takeover. There was barely any engagement really with, I think, the reality of what's happened, why it's happened. And Jamie Redknapp said that fans don't care who owns the club, which I think is not only literally not true, but is also kind of ducking the bigger question of whether, whether or not that they should. So I thought that was really, really poor. And then secondly, Redknapp went on this very strange kind of anti-Daniel Levy rant 
afterwards in which he claimed that Tottenham had been offered quote an incredible amount of money a great offer for Harry Kane in the summer which is not true uh, and accused Daniel Levy of not winning anything at all during his tenure at Tottenham which again is also not not true and yeah it, it just seemed to be really kind of strangely unfair on on Daniel Levy and also inaccurate the one time when they get an incredible amount of money great offer to a player is obviously wants to leave. I think there was a, maybe a verbal agreement, 130 million. They decided to say no. I don't. I didn't understand that. That didn't make any sense to me. And I know you've got to keep your big players, but Jamie, I think let you me ask you this again. Do you think selling Harry Kane would have helped Spurs move forward as a football team? Uh, I think when you've got a player that wants to leave, and doesn't want to beat your club. I don't think it helps. Now, did you say that they, they're doing a rebuild and so they don't want to talk? I mean, how many rebuilds has Daniel had? I mean, I'm not, I've lost count of rebuild. Mm-hmm. He is. I think well, if anybody moved, else moved into a very expensive new stadium, brilliant, quite a great recent. stadium, and great this, training. This they would but say they haven't won a trophy under his tenorship. That's not good enough. Anybody else, any other chairman would have been voted out or, or left. There's been successes. The training ground, the stadium. I get it, 100. percent But in terms of recruitment and getting things right on the pitch, but this I is think he's, he's not he's not done well enough. One is always looking for drama in these things. I just thought I could feel his father working him um, like a glove puppet. And it certainly made me less likely to buy Skechers products in the near future. What did you make of it, Charlie? I'm really surprised. But I mean, the way he was talking about Daniel Levy was as if Daniel Levy was Mike Ashley. A lot of it was wide of the mark. I mean, I, yeah, I was interested because I was there. So I wasn't watching it on Sky Sports. But it seemed as that from just from the snippets I got on Twitter, it did seem like there was quite a lot of hostility towards the way they were covering it. I mean, I get, you know, if you were defending them or trying to be even-handed, you say it's a tricky one because how much do you, uh, the balance right of how much do you talk about the owners, et cetera, et cetera, and how much do you just focus on the football? But I think, yeah, from from what it sounds like, Jamie Redknapp, because he was also asked about the ownership, and as you say, he said most fans don't care. I don't know, it doesn't sit right, really. And it's a shame because Sky Sports have proven in the past they can be good at, confronting big issues like famously uh during in the west indies last summer when michael holding spoke at length about racism and racism racism that he's experienced throughout his life and career and this was you know a real high point for cricket broadcasting and yet on this on this topic they completely dropped the ball in the difference there is you've got michael holding on the firm and not jb redknapp whatever michael is capable of seizing the moment and expressing it with the english language at a very high level as he did uh, to such fantastic effect on that day. His Desert Island Discs, which was on uh, a few weeks ago, is, is well worth a listen. And you say about the English language, it's interesting because when he first started, he was really, as a broadcaster, he was really nervous that he, you know, some people might have difficulties understanding him because of his accent and this sort of thing. So what an amazing, I mean, what an amazing broadcaster he is. That's a big diversion, but I would recommend his Desert Island Discs. It's fascinating. I mean, I tell you what, I've met a lot of very, very famous people in my time, both in music and sport. One of I've, I suppose I've asked for the autograph of five of them in that whole time. Oh, wow. Lou Reed wow. being one, and Michael Holding being. I've definitely. I, I must oh, have, wow. I must have, in preparation. Salt Bay being another. Salt of course. Bay, of course. I can't wait. Incidentally, since we Salt Bay is one of the things we talk about in this podcast, did you see the review of his restaurant in the Observer yes. yesterday? Jay Ray, Jay Ray was re- yeah, absolutely fantastic. brilliant piece of journalism. Um, which Jack he uh, he bought an eight pound kebab from a nearby and famous kebab shop. Um, and ate it outside Salt Bay and compared it to the possibility of eating gold-encrusted steak at 1,600 quid a pop um, and decided that he was definitely on the right track with the kebab. And well done to Jay for that. don't normally read restaurant reviews, but it was brought to my attention 
uh, by several people who know my interest in, in the in the in the Mansalt Bay. <laughs> in the Bay. Also, did we did you see? I missed this at the time, but Sergio Regulon uh, yeah. went to Salt Bay's restaurant as well at the end of September and did the, uh, yeah. the salt. Yeah, the sprinkling. <laughs> I guess that's that's as much as we could probably squeeze out of this game against Newcastle, except to reiterate again, because you don't get enough chances in the average season to say how pleased I was with Spurs. Um, I'm the first to be cynical and defeatist about them, but uh, in a circumstance where it would have been the easiest thing in the world to look at each other and say, we'll let this go, lose 2 Neil, get out of here. They turned it around beautifully. And in doing so, as you both suggested, may have found a way forward for their team with the best-looking uh, forward players on the pitch um, and the centre-back partnership as well. Big test coming up for West Ham, and I don't, we'll talk about that and much else besides And when we come back on Thursday. But for now, that's the end of this edition of The View from the Lane. Thanks to Charlie and uh, Jack, of course, and to you for listening. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can read all of our articles on Spurs by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now you can sign up with a 33% discount on a full subscription. We'll be back on Thursday, as I say. Thank you all for listening. I'll give you another one. Well, I, I don't think anyone's thing. considered. Laurent Blanc. Why? The Athletic. <laughs>